I know. He, actually, one of my favorite comedians in the entire world. Please welcome the adorable Greg Proops, everybody. That's improv, bitch. Improv, bitch. I mean, after all, you're nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Improv. Nerds. Hi, I'm Jimmy Corain, host of Improv Nerd. We're really excited to bring you this special episode of Improv Nerd with our guest, improviser and stand-up comic and star of Whose Line Is It Anyway, Greg Proops. You can catch Greg this Friday and Saturdays at Zany's in Chicago. For tickets, go to zanies.com. We caught up with him at the Hotel Indigo, so there's a little ambient sound. Enjoy the podcast. You know him as an improviser and a stand-up comedian who's appeared on both the British and American versions of Whose Line Is It Anyways? He's also the host of his critically acclaimed podcast, The Smartest Man in the World. And is it the Proofcast, too? And the Vodcast. And the Vodcast. He's in Chicago this weekend to do uh, shows at Zany's on Fridays and Saturdays. Greg Proops, welcome to another special edition of Improv Nerd. Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, Thanks for doing this. Um, in terms of comedy, you, you, you got off to a fast start. You grew up in San Francisco doing stand-up in high school. Where does a high school kid do stand-up? Oh, at, at school. Okay. Uh, at all the talent shows and stuff like that. Then when I got to junior college, uh, you know, they uh, I was with a partner, Forrest Brakeman. We were a very marginally funny comedy team called Proops and Brakeman, and uh, we got hired to do, you know, rallies and outdoor events and stuff like that. And so that's when I first started getting paid, when I was probably like 18, 19, and so then after that, it was irresistible. We did a, we did a lunchtime rally, and um, there was a band there called the Boarding House Reach, and uh, we thought they were so old. They were probably like 28, 29, you know. They were working in a bar in Palo Alto, so we did a set. They did their set. And then they go, you guys are really funny. You should come down to this bar we work at and do your set in between our sets, right? So we went down, we were like eight, like I say, this is 78, somewhere in there, 79. We went down and um, did sets at the saloon, you know, and they let us in and they let us drink and do drugs and the whole thing. And, and you're in high school? Junior college. Junior college. Um, so just a teenager still. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was irresistible, you know, being treated like a grown up. And what kind of material were you doing? Oh, God, you know, commercial parodies. Uh, we had Paraquat jokes, if you remember Paraquat. The government was spraying marijuana with poison in Mexico at that point. Uh, we had, a, I think, an AM DJ routine, uh-huh. which was big stuff in those days. Uh, I think the first anti-smoking uh, ordinance had come out, and we were kind of on that. And just terrible, frenetic, uh, never taking a breath kind of double act stuff that teams do. Real high energy kind oh, of stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had mad energy. We just would never wait for the audience to laugh because we were so afraid they weren't going to laugh. When did you learn, when, when did you learn to, to, to uh, wait for the laugh? I haven't really ever. <laughs> I still get pretty anxious. Uh, but over the years, uh, I think uh, going to England uh, helped me uh, change the timing a little bit. And now the podcast, I think, has helped me 
uh, really not worry about that. Obviously, if you listen to it, there's vast stretches where there's no laughter, even though it's still a comedy podcast. Uh-huh. So uh, I don't, I don't think I'm quite as concerned anymore about uh, making sure they're laughing every second. How do, how does that happen? Because so many people in improv and comedy, they they say, oh, it's not about the laugh. But we all know that's really oh, a it's hard. About the laugh. All right. Okay. So how did you get over it? Is it just an age thing, or? Yeah, it's partly that, and partly. Uh, I detest this word, but I, for some reason it just popped in my head, the delivery system, uh, it, the mode of how you're doing it. As a stand-up, I would never let them go more than a minute or two without laughing. Mm-hmm. If it took a long setup or something, that's fine. Um, the podcast gives me all kinds of leeway. Because I'm sitting, because they're listening, because it's that kind of show, I, I can go slower, I can make more of a point, I can spend five or ten minutes on something, because I have an hour, an hour and a half. Uh, in stand-up, I really feel like you've got to deliver LPMs, and I still feel that way. I would never slow my stand-up down the way I would slow the, the podcast down. Also, I'm improvising the podcast, so there's that added thing of they know I'm just making it up, mm-hmm. or I presume they know I'm making it up. Whereas if I was doing improv with a group, I would never go that slow either. Ever, 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 ever. I would never let five minutes go by. You'd be watch the crowd walk out the door in an improv show if you went five minutes without a laugh. So here's the thing. Doing stand-up, it's all you. And you you have all responsibilities for making them laugh, for for the pacing of it, for taking care of the audience. Then you go and you work with a group, uh, say, when you and Ryan Stiles go and tour. Mm -hmm. How do you make that adapt? How do you adapt in your head uh, from stand-up to now I'm just part of an ensemble? I don't, uh, it's not much of a jump. I mean, I've been working with Ryan for over 20 years now, and we've been in a group together for, God, at least, at least a decade. Um, he's really relaxed, and I know what he likes, and uh, I, I play to that. Um, for me, it's a matter of you just have to abrogate all responsibility toward any kind of social comment. That's the, the main thing. It's, it's, you're in a group, you give yourself over to the band, if I'm by myself on stage, it's going to be my poison opinion. When I'm with the group, I'm not going to try to inject my poison opinion into the middle of a, a game or a, a sketch. It's all about being funny then, and it's all about servicing the audience. So how did you, getting back to San Francisco, you're in junior college, you're doing, how did you get exposed to improv? Uh, I went to San Francisco State, and there was an improv group there called Fault Line. Faultline Comedy Theater, and I just saw the guy who asked me to be in an improv uh, two nights ago. I was in San Jose, and he came up. He came down to see the podcast, and we had dinner. Uh, his name is Reed Rollman, and um, he had a little group at the Cantina at San Francisco State. So I, uh, uh, I went to see it, and uh, I've I've often used the line. Uh, of, uh, I think it's Keenholz, uh, the artist. Uh, his his parents took him to see an art show when he was little, and they showed him a Rembrandt, and he said, "I can do that." Which I love, right? The arrogance of right. I could do Rembrandt. Right. So I watched the improv show and I thought I can do that. I'd never done improv in my life, but I'd done stand up and I'd been in plays, and uh-huh. you know, done all that variety jazz. So the next week I went and I sat in the front row and they asked me to get up and I got up. I did a sketch with Reed. Were you hoping that they were going to ask you to get up? Not only was I hoping, I made sure I got up. <laughs> How? By sitting in the very front row. Okay. There was a floor, and you could sit on the floor, you know, it's college. Right. So I was cross-legged on the floor right in front of that fucking uh-huh. stage. And as soon as they said, Can we, we're going to... And I didn't even know if they were going to do it or not, because I didn't know them. Uh-huh. I didn't even know them well enough to ask them, are you going to do the audience spot tonight? Mm-hmm. I just presumed they did it every week, because they did. Right. Because we're all kids, you know, they were the mm-hmm. same age. And, they, and, and Reed lived at school, too. We all lived at the dorms. 
So when he said, can I have a volunteer? I was on that stage before he finished asking. We got a suggestion and it was, you'll love the timeliness of this. It was a, a Mooney and a Wino at a bus station. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who I Just so, the, so our listeners, we have young listeners. Remember what Moonies well, were? Can you tell people what uh, Moonies um, were? The, the, the Unification Church was uh, started by the Reverend Sung Young Moon from South Korea. And in the 70s, it gained a quite a lot of popularity. There was a lot of cults in America in the 70s that people don't remember anymore, like the Rashnish uh-huh. and the, the Moons. And the Moonies would ask for money. They, uh, they were like um, Krishnas without the morality. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, Krishna's moral people who right. lived in poverty. Right. The, the the Unification Church was like sort of a amped up Christianity. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I don't even know if it exists anymore. They used to do mass weddings. Remember mm-hmm. that they would they would marry five thousand people. Right, and it would be like on tele they yeah. videotape them. I mean, oh, yeah, you'd yeah. see little clips and get scared. Right, because it was, it was scary. Yeah, it was, it, there was no individuality in the Unification uh-huh. Church. I believe that's why they were called the Unification Church. Uh, so you get Moonies and Wines. So it's but the reason why it was a Moonie is because Moonies would in those days like Krishnas hassle you for money mm-hmm. uh, at bus stations and at airports. So so I did that sketch, and then the next day I didn't think much about it. Went home, I got high. Uh, the next day, uh, I was playing pinball. That'll also give you an idea what year it was. Uh, in the student union, and uh, Reed came up to me, and I was with Forrest, my partner. And he said, "You want to be in an improv group with me? You want to be in my improv group?" And I said, "My partner Forrest is pretty funny too. We do a stand-up back." And he goes, "Never mind him. I'm asking you." Right in front of him, so uh-huh. that he didn't talk to him for a while. Right. After that. Eventually, Forrest joined the group, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so I, I joined it right then and there, and then I learned to do games from those guys. I never went to Second City. I never took a class. I never was the committee. Of course, was known in San Francisco. Oh, were they yeah, done in? Were they in done the by the seventies? No, they were still going. Uh, I think they were kind of dragging on at that point. The pitcher player who who was uh, Spaghetti Factory. That's who was going then. There was a Papaya Juice. Uh, uh, Femprov. There was a whole bunch of groups in San Francisco. Debbie Durst, my friend Wilder's wife, uh-huh. who's a superb improviser, uh, was playing always at the Spaghetti Factory. I think that was Sunday nights so when they could do like open jam. And I used to go see her because I worshipped her. And uh, then I did some improv with her at like different, but the other cafe, a bunch of places that are gone now. All uh-huh. these places are, these places are all ruins now. Um, the committee that was well known to me because they were on TV mm-hmm. uh, and so were. Um, the L.A. comedy groups, The Credibility Gap, uh, that had Fred Willard in it uh-huh. and uh, Michael McKean, uh, and they were like sketch improv groups that did well enough that they got on TV. When I was little, the committee would be on TV in San Francisco. They used to do, a, a, oh my God, they used to do their sketches, and I think stuff that had come out of improv, and occasionally they'd let them have like an even whole TV show, and I remember doing the war scoreboard uh, during Vietnam, uh, when it was when it was fun and exciting to be a lefty as opposed to something that you were castigated for because you cared about people. So anyway, yeah, that, that I'd, I'd heard of improv, but I didn't know what it was. And so when I started doing it, uh, then um, in the eighties in San Francisco, uh, there there must have been a million improv groups because uh-huh. we remember we did uh, the guy who ran the boarding house where Steve Martin made his first okay. album, Let's Get Small. Uh, his name was David Allen, and I remember doing his birthday party when I was maybe 21 years old, and I played young David Allen, right? right. Made, but every improviser in the Bay Area came to do it, and there must have been 150 improvisers of varying ages. Uh-huh. Uh, Jim Crenna, who had been in the committee, and uh, Danny Delk, and all, you know, like all these people. So, uh, I mean, I didn't work with Howard Hessman or Peter Bonners or any uh-huh. of those guys, but they're sort of the legendary San Francisco what, Was the scene mostly short form at that point? Uh, yeah, for us it was. But well, we did Harold's too, and, and uh, maybe occasional Shakespeare or something like that. 
Um, and then I learned to do a little more long form. But then the group I'm in with Ryan and Drew, you know, we do his line style on props, so it's all short form, just games, game, game. Uh, we can do heralds, but we're not very good at them. And I never really like them if you're not good at them. If you're great at long form, then you should do long form. If, if you're, if you can't focus on it, then I, I really hate it. You know, we, we would. What do you hate about it? The, the diffuseness of eight different people going in eight different directions. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I say, I, I've worked with the UCB and, and uh, um, uh, other improv groups. I've watched them do long form, and they're fabulous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, when I play in London with the comedy store players, we always do a musical. Uh, sometimes we do a, a, a Shakespeare. Sometimes we do a Sherlock Holmes. You know, a long 25, 35 minute mm-hmm. whole play. And with them, they can do it. But with the group that had, with the Drew Carey larger group, uh, which is a bunch of the Who's Line guys, we're terrible at long form. I just never thought we were, we would, we would, come, we would go to the improv in LA and, and then rather than try to write a second half of the, of the list, they go, oh, we'll do a Herald here. And then the Herald will just drag on forever and, no, and, and you know, you're supposed to get a, an overarching theme that you come back to. Right. Well, that would just get lost in the dust and I was like, there's one thing I demand as a stand-up, it's callbacks. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, I, I believe the one thing Keith Johnstone said about improv, you're walking backwards down the road. You know where you were. You don't know where you're going. So, God damn it, since you know where you were, you got to bring that back. You can't just let the whole audience go drifting away. You know? Yeah, but there's nothing worse <laughs> to me than a forced callback. Well, not a forced one. Just Okay. It's, it's a matter of not remembering it. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, I, you've done it. You've just done a scene, and now I completely ignore what you've done and go off in another direction. And then no one ever comes back to touch on either of those things. It's like, mm-hmm. well, is that a herald or is that just a series of disconnected fucking improv scenes that aren't funny? <laughs> now, you, you've, you've described improv as the cocaine of comedy. Can I you, did? Yes. Were you high when you said that? I must have been. I'm often high. Uh, I'm not now, but I often am. Uh, are you sober are now? Are you sure it was me? Who said yes. That? Yes. It wasn't Colin or something? No. Uh, well, I guess it is because, you know, it gives you such a rush. Um, because you don't know what you're going to say and you don't know what's going to happen. And, th- and that's the fun I still get out of it. The other fun is, like I say, I play with a group in England or several groups in England mm-hmm. and I play with maybe two, two or three groups in the States uh, on a regular basis, I mean. And uh, I know them all for a long time and we still make each other laugh. And that would be the key to me. If we were tired of each other or they didn't make me laugh anymore or I didn't make them laugh, I know it's time to like move on. Uh, but we really find each other wildly amusing. And we try it. When I'm in the group with Ryan, it's me, Ryan, Chip, Eston, and Jeff Davis. We really try to push each other. And we're always trying to get each other to laugh. And that's the key of keeping it fresh. And what do you mean by pushing, pushing each other? Make it, make it funnier. Make it faster. Make it go this way. Make it go that way. So that it's not... I mean, we're playing the same games. Right. And within the games, there's plenty of rules. Uh-huh. Um, someone said to me in England, my friend Steve Steen said, I love when you play with us because I know that there's not going to be any rules. Because I'll just walk into a scene or, 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 you know, in England they learned improv from Mike Myers and Kit Hollenbach, you know, they... Mike Myers from yeah, Wayne's World? He, yeah, yeah. He, he, he sort of taught the players all the games because he's from Toronto and mm-hmm. he, his family's from Liverpool, so when he moved to England, he knew how to play all the games. Mm-hmm. So he taught them the games. So they still play freeze tag and, and, and who am I and all those things. But when they play freeze tag, there's two of them out there. And if you get freeze and you add a third person to it, they freak out. They still at this late date, but I'll always come out and just be a third person and go, um, you can do it any way you want. There's not a rule that says someone has to, because one of them will leave the stage and I'll grab them and pull them back on and go, uh-uh, you're in this scene too. What, why do you think that is, that there, there's that element of 
you got to do it a certain way. I don't know. It's never. I have always hated that part. Uh, to me, I think uh, I don't know who said it, but it's true. You have to know the rules well enough to know how to break them. Mm-hmm. So you have to know the rules, and there has to be rules. Because without that, there's no structure. Without any structure, there's no form. And without form, it's just a miasma. But uh, having said that, once you know the rules, always flip them around to do something funny. I, 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 this is what drives me crazy about, you know, really organized improv. I don't mean Second City. I mean... Now you're going to get your political views in on it. I know, but I don't want to. I, okay. I don't want to no, smash on other, people's political, uh, on other people's types of improv. The problem I find with groups that wear little uniforms and have referees and stuff like uh-huh. that is that it's a little too... Per- there's too many parameters mm-hmm. for me. If I want to swear on stage, uh, I don't want to have to wear a bag for doing it. And mm-hmm. I don't, actually. I, over the last few years, funnily enough, I found that in the group that I'm in with Ryan, whose uh, uh, life, we don't swear at all. We really cut it out to like very little swearing. A few years ago, we were doing a show in uh, Michigan or somewhere, and... Uh, Couple of a uh, couple of cunts got dropped, and it was and, and it didn't stop the crowd dead. But afterward, we kind of talked about it. We were kind of drunk, you know. You're not drunk during the show, are you? But we were that night. You okay. know, we were a little loose. Okay. And, and we were like, you know, it's not that funny. And then for me, my complete argument about. Uh, Swearing, not in stand-up, mind you, and not in the podcast because uh-huh. I curse massively. Uh, but in an improv group, is you have no inference left, and inf- I'm, I have to be able to infer things in an improv. Show. Explain that. Um, if I come in and I go, "Good morning, boy," it's a hot day. Mm-hmm. That can get a huge laugh, right? As opposed to coming in and going, "I just fucked your mom in the ass." Once you fuck someone in the ass, there's no unfucking them to the audience. Okay. So, uh, some people, when they do improv, have, don't have a lot of boundaries, and they go right to the dirty place, and it's all about that, and prison sex, and blowjobs. And that's funny, too, except that once you've gone, and if that's what your group's doing, that's groovy. But with our group, we get a real mainstream, you know, we get Who's Line fans from the TV. We're their TV friends. As soon as we say, I'm going to fist you, that's the end of that. You know? Right. They don't like that anymore. And then I think, as, well, as our, our road manager put it, we're not raising our stock in their eyes. You want, you want your stock to be high. They want, to, they want you to be clever and witty and quick, not filthy and dirty and icky. They can go anywhere for that. So it wasn't an aesthetic, it wasn't a big decision that we all sat down and you know, swore in blood. It was mostly after this one show, we were like, you know what? We should pull it together a little bit. And then if it's one Faka show or one couple of swear words here and there, they really land. That's the rule. If you're going to use it, land it. It should be a neutron bomb. It should clear the room personnel. Don't just say it to say it. Uh, and however in stand-up, of course, I'm loose as can be about it. Um, because I figure I'm going to be up there talking long enough that they'll get the idea. How often does that conversation after a show, you all get together and you say, oh, you know, Ryan, I think if we would have giving each other notes. Do you do that? Very rarely. I, I hate giving notes and I hate getting notes. Also, we're old. Let's put it this way. We're experienced. Um, so I feel like after an improv show, you know what you did. 
and you know what you should have done, and you know what you should have done better, and you know that you went this way on this one bit and you hit it on the other way, that you could have made a little more active choice here, that you could have been a little funnier here, you could have sang your song better, you could have done this. I don't need anybody to tell me when I suck. I know when I suck. So I'm hesitant, because Ryan is a superb improviser, all the boys are, to give them any notes at all. But technically, there'll be things. So we will go over that. Like, don't go there, or don't do that, or this doesn't work over here. Mm -hmm. But it's never a matter of uh, what people say or anything like that. I would never take anyone out for the choice they made. Um, I I dislike notes, and I dislike meetings. I don't think they accomplish anything. Unless you're writing a sketch show or something. If you're putting together a sketch show, then you have to. Right. Now, you mentioned that... You have to determine what you're going to do. You mentioned that you guys had a couple drinks. Have you ever done a show where you've been blitzed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what did you learn from that? Can you tell us about that show? Well, well, it's many shows um, that you're not as funny when you're uh, drunk. One, for me, it's a matter of control. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to control yourself, and you have to be able to control the audience. You have to be able to control what you're talking about. And once you get too drunk... That's all gone. Then you're just heedless McTavish. Um, I'm not proud that I have, but I think right. that any performer over a long-ass career is going to end up being inebriated a few times on stage. And we're all good enough that we can, we can all perform drunk because mm-hmm. we're still funny. Right. But I just don't recommend that it's a great... It's also a hazard of this, being in, you know a live performer. You're in saloons and bars and theaters every night of your life and... They'll give you all the alcohol you like, and you know the temptation's always there. I mean, that's why I call the podcast the podcast because I do have a big tumbler of vodka when I do. Now, it. do you by the end of the the podcast are you? I'm loose. Uh huh. I'm trying not to be too high. Sometimes I think I get a little too drunk because I'll I won't be able to tackle a word, or I'll be reading something and I'll mispronounce something, and then I realize. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's been a few uh, improv shows where I was in a bad. I mean. Years ago, a very close friend of mine um, died, and on the day I heard that he died, we were doing a show that night at some casino in New York or something, and I was just absolutely, completely, overly drunk by showtime, like uh-huh. before the show. Uh-huh. I remember Chip came over to me and said, you all right there, because we're going to need you tonight, and I was like, ruff, 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 ruff. and I got up and did the show, but I was in no condition to be on stage. I was depressed as fuck and really, really sad, and I just... My reaction, of course, was to drink a bottle of vodka and, like, it wasn't the most responsible thing I've ever done, but everybody lived. Where does that, you know, the depression come from? A lot of comedians, I think we all suffer from depression. I know, right? Yeah. Where do you think in your growing up came from? Some don't, which I find very unusual. I don't even trust the ones who are not depressed. (laughs) Um, I think it's the flip side of just being... uh, like, were you ever suicidal? I mean, I can't tell you how many suicidal thoughts I've had. Yeah. I was, but not since I was a teenager. Um, uh-huh. Um, but I've been very depressed over this and that over mm-hmm. the years. I don't know what it is. I think it's just a... Is it a weakness of character or just a, a, a component of... You're always joking or you always have to be funny and you're always on. And when you're in front of the public, you have to be. It's mm-hmm. your job. And you can't be a churl about it and go, I don't want to. Right. You know, no matter how shit you feel, uh, when the bell rings, you got to get up. And so there's that professional part of it. So maybe there's, because you have to do that and it's stringent, maybe the obverse of it is that 
you allow yourself, or one allows oneself, or I allow myself, to make it perfectly clear, uh, to, to be down. I know it drives my wife crazy, because she's not depressive at all. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get it, does she? Well, she, she doesn't understand why I'll get so depressed, uh-huh. you know. Like, um, what's so depressed look for you? Oh, just more than, you know, like, I don't want to do anything, I, I'm... Uh, not returning phone calls, can't get out of bed kind of stuff? Well, you know, sort of. I, I don't, like, I do like to cloister. I mean, when, I, when I'm really, really not happy, I don't want anyone around me. Mm-hmm. And I always feel like, well, I'm doing everyone a favor. You don't want to be around me. I, I can relate, yeah. But then, of course, as soon as you get out with people, then the depression goes away. Right. So you realize the thing you're doing is exacerbating the condition that you... If instead of sitting at home and being depressed and keeping everyone away from you and thinking, oh, nobody really likes me. Right. Nobody really respects me. If you just got out. Every once in a while, it hasn't happened in years because I haven't had a week off in years, but in the past, I'll have been home for a week and not been working and my wife will go, will you please go do a set? Please get out and do a set. You know? Just because she knows that that's we're shallow. And the shallow attention of many people makes us happy. But also, don't you Temporarily. think? Don't you think that there's a, a mental health component to that for you too? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh no, I'd be a mess if I couldn't perform. It's never the performing that gets me down. It's the traveling around and the show business that get me down. Show business is a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I look at your bio, and I'm, you were like one of the most busy. I mean, you are a very busy guy. You're touring, you're doing, you know, the show on Nickelodeon, you you got the podcast, you know, you have a, you're doing voices. I mean, you're pretty busy. Well, I try to keep busy. It's just that I, I hate... Um, what do you hate about it? Show business? Yeah. Um, I've never been very good at the kissing up and the sucking up and the networking. Like, I see other comics who are really good at you know, I was talking to a, a lady who bo- used to book the Improv in LA the other week, and she said, well, this one comic, whenever you call for a set, you know, you call, and I, I want to work on Tuesday right. or whatever. Uh, oh, CBS come down. Uh, I want to do this set because so-and-so from this company is coming down. I want to do this set because this guy from this corporation is coming down. She said he never just called to do a set. There was always an agenda behind every set that we're selling this thing. And it's like, I've never, ever done that. I, I don't even know if two times in my life I've ever set up a show where I'd be shown off to my best advantage. It never occurs to me. It's not something that I... The whole idea of fame and all that shit is just so stupid and awful. And having have a little of myself uh, and, and having not gone after it in any way, just got lucky the guy got on the TV show that stayed on for a thousand years. Um, yes, of course, my magnificent contribution is in great part why the show is so wildly successful, blah, blah, blah. But having said that, you do meet people who... I'm sure you meet them too, who are doing it to be famous, and I never trust that or understand it. And then even worse than that, people who become a little bit famous, and you can see that they're smitten with their fame. They're at that point in their life when it's usually in the in your early 30s or or whenever it hits you, but early 30s seems to be about right because no one's really funny in their 20s. And then in your early 30s, you're quite funny because you've had 10 years to work on. Right, it. and then. You know, by the time you're my age, I'm 52. uh, You know, you're not gonna. I'm not gonna be the star of a movie or anything. So the pressure's off in Uh a lot of ways. Um, I met some guys in England when I was there in December, who were quite famous in England. 
And I have a lot of English friends who are really famous, really famous. And of course, they handle it. They're like, okay, fine. They don't care. But the couple guys I'm talking about, I met them and you could see it in their eyes. That I went up to one and went, hi, I'm Greg, because I hadn't met him yet. And he couldn't get around his ego to say hi, and then did, and then felt like he was blessing me by saying hi. And I could see all this going on in his head. And I thought, you're 30-something. I know exactly where you're going through. I know what you're... You can't believe that you're famous right now. You can't believe it. And that's a really fucked up place to be comedically, frankly. In what way? Why is that? Because we were doing this improv stand-up show called The Set List that Paul mm-hmm. Provenza put together with Troy Conrad, which is really cool. And improvisers are good at it. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for them, they ask improvisers to do it. Well, I'm an improviser as well as a stand-up, so I, I qualify on both counts. They hand you a list when you walk on, and it'll say, uh, a vegetable conspiracy, agnostic drill sergeant, Jesus best day, the real story of Jen, right? Just any old topic. And then you have to get up and do them one after the next. Well, a lot of stand-ups are too self-conscious and they think too much and they overanalyze. And because I do improv, I love this show, right? I right. just get up and I, I'll do a sketch for one, I'll do a song for another, I'll do a poem for one, I'll do a one-liner for one. I look at it as an improv. Well, I, I, I am stand-up. I mean, if, if it lends itself to a joke, uh-huh. then I'll do it as a joke. Mm-hmm. But I also don't feel like you don't have to do 10 minutes on each of these, the audience. This is about this is about reaction. Mm-hmm. They see it. It's on the list behind you, so they know what mm-hmm. you're going to talk about. But they don't know what you're going to say. Like I got him, um, split pea farmer was one. So I just went, honey, what's for lunch? Or honey, come in for lunch. And then I turned around. It better not be soup, right? The split pea farmer, right? <laughs> and that was it. And I didn't feel like that required a sketch. Uh-huh. I didn't feel like it required a dance or a song right, or, right. or a preamble or anything. Sometimes you find the joke and you kill it, even in improv, and it's that long. I'm not afraid of that. Well, this cat was going to go on, who I'm talking about, and he was all self-conscious about what he was going to do, and then, oh, should I do this? And she didn't. I was like, calm the fuck down about yourself. If you trust yourself, uh-huh. and that's what comedy is, right? Any good comedian, they trust themselves. It, maybe it's not funny now, but it'll be funny in a minute. Uh, it's way more that than being funny. Because not everyone's funny that's a successful comedian. As my friend Warren, who passed away, said to me many years ago, I said something about that person's not funny. And he went, funny? When did funny have anything to do with success? No, I, 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 would, I would get so mad the fun, not funny people making it. How did you handle it? Well, you know, first there's bitterness and hatred. And then as I've gotten older, I've just come to accept it. As my friend Matt Weinhold used to say, you have to remember it's not for you. It's not for you. Whatever they're doing that you hate, that the public is seeming to love, clearly it's not aimed at you because you don't like it. So fucking forget about it and do your own thing. Move on. And I think the podcast has really helped me do that and really helped me deal with, as Oscar Wilde said, a little part of us dies when our friends succeed, you know. And uh, what what did Morrissey say? We hate it when our friends become successful. It's not so much that. I don't hate it when my friends become successful. My friends, I want to succeed. It's the people you perceive as not being worthy. When uh-huh. they succeed, you think, oh, you fucking right. asshole. You're a miserable fucker. You're not funny. You're never nice to me. You, you know, da 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 da. How dare you be big? Yes, yes. <laughs> that, I can totally relate right, to that. It's I mean? like, 
they're a jerk on top of it. Right. And, it's, and I always say, you know, God, how could you give them a break? Right. You know, I'm a nice guy. Right. I should get more. Right. Do you right. ever feel that? Always, because we're, we perceive ourselves as polite and professional. When we come into a situation, we're ready to play when we need to play. We don't have to be coaxed. We don't have to be cajoled. And you see people who are grumpy and uh, cont- uh, contentious, uh, horrible, not necessarily even funny all the time, not even genial. And, and yet, time and time again, they're called back into the inner sanctum of show business to be risen and, and, and lauded and, and praised and given more. And you think, well, then what's the point of being professional? I could have been just a miserable cocksucker every second and still have gotten this far. But everybody's personality works differently. The problem is, again, when we think that, we're thinking about ourselves. Right. And it's, an, it's a Buddhist thing. Right? Once you don't have an ego anymore, there is no problem. Yeah, but how do you do that in show business? You can't. Okay. You can't. You can't. So that's what I hate about show business. Not so much the other comics that make it that I'm jealous of. Like I said, I'm not jealous of my friends. When my friends make it, I try to be the person that phones them or emails them and says, well done. Congratulations on your thing. And believe it or not, because the world we live in, sometimes they can't. They don't know whether I'm being an asshole. They can't accept honest sincerity. Uh-huh. I had a friend last week. That, this is different. He, he did. I wrote him, and he just got a, a TV deal. Okay. And he's going to be doing a big thing in the TV show. And I, you know, he used to open for me. You know, uh, uh, I've known him a long time since he was a kid. And I said, fucking well done, man. You did it. And he wrote back, thank you. And thank you for supporting me all these years. Instead of, what the fuck is that, man? Really? You know, because other comics, I'll call and congratulate them. And I'll, mm-mm, don't hear a word back. How is that different? Because I'm... You think they're, you know, their defenses are up, man. But don't you... Th- like, I'm from Chicago, and the community, not only here, but everyone who goes to L.A. or New York, there's right. a, they're, they're very supportive. And the improv community, in general, I think is very supportive. Right. How does that differ from the stand-up? The people in the stand-up community. Oh, no, stand-ups are reasonably supportive of each other. The thing that people don't understand about stand-ups is, uh, yes, we're competitive and we're douchebaggy and neurotic, but having said that, we're a fraternity, and I don't mean that to exclude women. I mean, women are a part of the fraternity, right. too. We're all a fraternity. Uh, if you're on with other comics and one of the comics has taken a lot of shit from the crowd, that's on you. And I've come on after other comics and laid into the people who how to go with my friends. Uh-huh. Even people I didn't particularly like as people, I've gone on and hammered into the crowd and then had them come back, the other comic come back and like me more after because I feel like this is our game, La Cosa Nostra, right? right? Our thing, our thing. And that's how comics feel, stand-up comics. And because most stand-ups didn't, they knew I was an improviser but I didn't really do a lot of improv on the stand-up stage. I was accepted. You know, that stand-ups and improvisers for some reason are like cousins who don't get along or yes, something. And there's yes. a retardation yeah, there. Yeah. Rick Overton is a great stand-up and uh-huh. a great improviser. I can do improv and stand-up. Ryan doesn't do stand-up anymore, and he did. He started as a stand-up. Drew used to, but Drew doesn't really do stand-up anymore. Right. He was more of a stand-up than an improviser, and right. he was kind of an improviser. I never too. thought he was watching the show. He was... Well, he was a host. He he, he feel he looked he looked uncomfortable doing. Well, he he improvised improv for months. I mean, he never did it in his life till we all knew him. So he was learning on the with the cameras rolling. Absolutely, and Jeez. then we start. He started the big group that we all spun it off from. Like he would he would never agree with us. By the way, he would say he didn't. 
but I remember when he did. So I introduced him once in Montreal. We were all doing a group up there. And I said, the man who put us all together, and he came out and he went, I didn't put you guys together. And I said, you fucking did. I said, we wouldn't have all been together had we not all been in your orbit. You know, when you're the, when you're the, 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 uh, the nucleus and there's 10 electrons, it was your, you did it. Without his fame and without the show being on and without the bunch of us being in it, we wouldn't have been able to, you know, we play Vegas every year in a giant configuration, which I call the Preakness, because uh, there's so many of us. And that's the group Drew put together. We're an extended family. And in that group, c- contained and adjunct to is Wayne and Jonathan Mangum, uh-huh. uh, Colin and Come, Brad, uh-huh. uh, Ryan Nee, Chip and Jeff. Do you know, uh, Kathy Kenny, uh, Sean Masterson, there's, there's a whole big, and now we've added a few people in last year's Heather Ann Campbell. And whatnot, and uh, so he did kind of put us together. Is he a great improviser? No, I think he's an improved improviser. Right. I think he's better than he was when we started because I, he had no fucking idea. I always got, <laughs> I, I always got the sense that he appreciated it. Yeah. He was, he, you know, he really, he really appreciates the art, and he wanted yeah. to kind of elevate it. And I want to did more for it than any other. Yeah, TV and star. I want to, I, I want to ask you <laughs> two things about that show. One is, you know, up until that time, except for the the British version. No one could successfully replicate improv short form games on television. And that show did it. Why do you think it succeeded? Um, because it was produced um, meticulously so that the pacing was swift, that it played like a TV show, that there's no dead spots. Um, anything that died really isn't in the show. We did fail occasionally. You could, see, you could see us trying, and you could certainly see us riffing with each but other. But didn't you go longer, and then you would pare it down to a half hour? No, if anything, we would shoot for maybe two and a half hours. An hour and a half, an hour and 45 would be the games, but probably 25, 28 games. And then the next hour was ins and outs. And that's where the editing came in. And how many shows would they get off that? Five. Okay. I'm not kidding. From a two and a half hour taping, five half hours. Sometimes more. That's how meticulous the editing and the, and the putting together was. We, by the end, we very rarely failed. Uh-huh. And if you did fail and you, were, you needed to pull the ripcord, you'd swear. And they'd stop tape and you could reset. No. So that's how I did it. We'd be doing one of those fucking hoedowns or some nonsense. Which it sounds like you didn't like doing No, it. no one liked the hoedowns. No one. Ryan, if you yell hoedown at a show of ours, Ryan will go, fuck you. I don't fuck you. I don't want to. We hated the Irish drinking song and we hated hoedown. Well, we didn't think of those. Those weren't our games. Producers right. put those in. Um, you just went fuck and then they go cut and then you had a chance to think um, I often went first in the songs and um, did you like doing the songs? yeah I love doing the songs okay. I love music I, I really love doing music I, it's, it, in the English one we used to do full on musicals mm-hmm. that were like five minutes long five mm-hmm. seven minutes would be the whole last segment of the show mm-hmm. Clive would go into the audience get a bunch of information from people and then we'd get up and just do them me and McShane used to do them all the time Josie, Tony Ryan too, uh, but he won't do that in the big group. When the big group, in the group we're in now, uh, Jeff and Chip are superb singers, so uh-huh. we, we let them do most of the the bulk of the singing. Now, now Dan Patterson, mm-hmm. who produced Whose Line, was he was in Chicago recently, and he said right, that he went to school here. Did he really? Yeah, that's why. He, so uh, we used to play Sweet Home Chicago before the show. That's what okay, but he's got an English accent, doesn't he? Yeah. He matriculated here. He's from London. Okay. And he said, from Golders Green. 
the difference between American and British improvisers is, and I believe, I, I hope I get this right, that the American approach is more theatrical and they stay in character, while the British are more outside of the scene and making one-liners commenting on the scene. Was that your experience? Uh, probably, and also I think when we first got there, it was our exuberance was made the show explode a little more. I was on the second season was my first uh, of, season. Of the British show. Yeah, 89. And... Uh, the North Americans, when we got on, because I'm including our Canadian friends. Uh, um, thank you for that. Uh, you know, we'd high-five each other. Or we'd shake, you know, there was a little more bon ami up there mm -hmm. on the stage. I remember the first time I like went like this to an English person, they stuck their hand out to shake my hand. Like you couldn't... So you went for the, yeah, the, the high-five high five and they went like that. Okay. And like they didn't, you know, McShane and me would finish a bit on that show and walk off and go bam to each other like there was a, an enthusiasm mm -hmm. and they were, they were more reserved and in their heads that's how I felt we also did a lot more games that were in their head we did a game called Authors when we first started on Newsline that we never did on the American one because the presumption by all American producers is always that everyone's illiterate and that you must play to the lowest common level. How did you deal with that? Because you're very you, you, you played the I top played of as, I played as top as I could all the time I mean, I'm, I shook my ass as much as anyone else. There's uh -huh. a million scenes of me putting my ass to the camera and shaking it or wearing an animal hat and being a retard. <laughs> but I didn't. I would still play high as, mm -hmm. as often as I could. Top of your intelligence. I yeah. made, yeah, exactly. I made sure that when I had to do a bit that I didn't particularly think was funny, that I thought of something so funny to say right off the bat that, you know, like we do the news thing. And I would try to think of a funny name for my newscaster character. I had to be the anchor every week. I was never the weatherman. I was never the sports guy. Because Dan, you know, had his thing. Ryan does that. Wayne does that. So I would always say I'm twice nightly or I'm, uh, I'm amazingly hung or whatever it was. Right. You know, some sort of innuendo, which is where I get back to the inference. Uh -huh. Without saying anything dirty, I've said something unbelievably disgusting. And everybody remembers all my newscaster names, which, of course, I can't right now I do remember twice nightly uh -huh. uh, um, it would be uh, good evening I'm unfeasibly large mm -hmm. and then I shift slightly and now you've gotten away with a big dick joke uh -huh. and the whole crowd screaming but you haven't said a goddamn thing and they had a sensor that sat there in the booth and because we couldn't give them a script beforehand uh -huh. we're an unscripted show so the sensor sat in the box at ABC. Uh -huh. I mean, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the sensor came up to me before the show when we were eating dinner once and I went to have a great show. And I said, you have a great show and stay off my fucking ass tonight. Which, of course, I wouldn't say now, but I was right. wise to then. Um, because I really felt like no matter what I said, they were putting more innuendo in it than I wanted. No matter what I said on the show, they'd be like, oh. You said you, were, that, more, you were more feisty. Were you, were you kind of, what was going on? Were you high off your fame a little? Probably, I, not so much during his line, but um, I was as big a dickhead as anyone else when I was in my 30s. You know, I think I thought I knew everything or something. I, maybe I feel like that way now that I mm -hmm. feel like I did. Maybe I wasn't. Um, you'd have to ask people around me if I was, but you no, know, at that, uh, when I said it to the censor, it was is a matter of, I really felt like I was being constrained a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, no matter what the other guys said, it was cute and funny, but no matter what I said, there was this 
huge presumption that I was trying to put some sort of filthy agenda across. Right. Which I wasn't. Uh-huh. If anything, I was trying to be intellectualize it a little bit. Right. So that it wasn't all poo jokes. Or right. That we always weren't gay and on top of each other. Right. Or just TV references. Right. Um, and if we were going to do TV references, I would do cutting TV references mm-hmm. and make fun of the other shows that I didn't like or try to slip in some politics if it was at all possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember. You know, they, they, you had this much room to get your joke in. Mm-hmm. And I would try like the devil to get a political joke in if I could. Um, of course, they're all old now. Right. The problem with doing them is that those shows are evergreen and... You know, there'd be a Clinton joke. And on the British show, John Major jokes. And no one even remembers who John Major is now. So in your 30s, what, how big of a dick were you? What kind of dicky stuff did you oh, do? I don't think... I mean, I was just kind of a dick. I don't think I was a full Was it more one. of an attitude kind of thing? Yeah, like a yeah. comedy snob? Like you had figured it all yeah, out? Yeah, Well, I really felt like I was doing, you know, important work, I think. Um, also, I was really funny. I, I would say in my late 30s, I was as funny as anyone... Uh, I wouldn't say I, I'm not now, but I just that I've been a lot of places, and then I lived in England, and I toured in England for years, and my perspective was really I, I could do all the countries, and uh-huh. I mean I still can. It was just a different energy. I think it was a lot more aggressive. Like it was really important for me to lay down the law. Mm-hmm. It still is, but I just do it in a different way. I guess you just get older and it just kind of takes you over. You don't even think about how you change. Like, like we I would never those... confront people the way I would confront them in my 30s. Like I remember someone saying to me, Paul Provenza, in fact, who I'm very good friends with uh-huh. now, uh, coming to England in the 90s and said, we tried to get you on some show he was doing at the time, some cable show. And I said, I was in Edinburgh at the Assembly Bar, and I remember going, no, you fucking didn't, because I was fucking available. And if you'd wanted me, you could have got me. And that doesn't make anyone no, feel comfortable or good. No, and the chances, it really decreases your chances right. of getting more so work. So now you're just a crazy asshole? Right. Who's better? Before I was saying, I wanted to get you on the show, and you should have just gone, I would have loved to have done it. Right. Instead of, you didn't try. Right. But that's the way I would call people out. And that, that's an example of how I would do that in my 30s, that I would never do now. Because there's just no point in it. I really... Not on stage and not during the podcast, but in real life, I take the path of least resistance more than not. Mm-hmm. Rather than argue with someone, and this is going to sound awful because I like to consider myself an honest person, and rather than be completely honest with people in show business, I'd rather just let it slide. Because honesty in show business is a very tricky little animal. Because honesty can be like, you're not doing your job. And nobody wants to hear that, even if they're not doing their job. I mean, the smallest thing is if you call your agent and say, well, why didn't you submit me for that right. thing, they may, that part or something, they, they could get offended. They're right? always offended. Like, they, they, they're, the thing that drives me fucking crazy about show business is agents and managers and, and lawyers, all of them, producers, have as big of egos as us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's fair. I just don't think it's right. fair. We should have the big egos because we're the creative ones. They should be facilitating that. But the thing that drives me crazy about shows that I've found over the years is a lot of producers and agent types and whatnot dislike comedy intensely. They have no respect for it. Mm-hmm. They have no respect for it. Not all of them. And the good ones don't. Uh, the good ones do respect comedy. Uh, Dan Patterson uh, is a fan of all of ours. Mm-hmm. I've worked for him for 
well, God, we're into 20-something years now. I just did a show for him last year in November with Wayne and Colin and all the guys. We went over and did what's going to be on in June on ABC. And I still complain that I don't get work. Um, <laughs> and as crazy as Dan can drive me, I trust him. Mm-hmm. And I know where he's coming from, more importantly than that. Right. Like, I know if he goes, don't do this, do this, you do that, you do that. I know where he's coming from because I know his little, you know, rodent. I know the machinations going on inside his brain. Uh-huh. And I know he thinks, you can do this, so I'm going to have you do this. Because he's a producer, that's how he thinks. You know, like an Israeli colonel. Why would, why would I have the munitions guy right. uh, uh, dig a trench? Right. You dig a trench. Right. You're the trench digger. You, you, you blow up the thing. Mm-hmm. That's how he thinks. Um, but in that, he respects improv. I mean, at, at least he has an understanding of where the jokes go. Mm-hmm. Um, that easy. We got to uh, wrap this up. I, know, I, I, I wanna, never I, shut up. I want to ask you one more question that I didn't get to ask you about the impact you think Who's Line, because I know as a, a teacher and a performer for many years, how it's changed, how it how it has impacted the improv in... in uh, I don't know if I could hazard a guess. I, mean, I can tell you this. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we're going to go through it together. I think it was Sondheim who said that. Um, wherever we play, um, we go out for drinks after, you know, in whatever town we're in. And inevitably, someone will come up to me after and go, I have an improv group in town that we started after we saw Who's Line Off. We studied improv in school because our teacher liked Who's Line. And I think in high schools and colleges, Who's Line made it mainstream enough that people were able to hook into it. That's, I, I wouldn't say that we're wildly influential as about the form or anything like that. It's just that it existed. I, I think my experience was that it be, when you told people that had never experienced improv before, you used to say, well, it's like Second City, which right. wasn't really... That's more like Saturday Night Live because right. it's more review stuff. I was going to say it's more sketch. It's more sketch. But you could say it's like Who's Line, and they got it. Yep. And I think, I think, and I, I want to know your opinion, I think it's created partially a boom because people understood it. Mm-hmm. They saw it and they wanted to do it. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, every too. week you were showing them what improv was. Yeah. I think if you talk to uh, uh, people in their 20s and 30s, they would say that. that. That when they were little or when they were teenagers, they grew up with that. I have, you know, I've reached the age now where people say, I grew up watching you on TV. And I, of course, I always say, I don't want to know how but I think it did. I think it created an atmosphere because it was an, it was an answer, an easy, understandable answer, as opposed to Second City or the committee or whatever. Right, and the, and the other thing is it, improv is a hard thing to explain. When I say I teach it, people go, well, why, why? I thought you just make it up. It. Yeah, how do you teach it? It's right. But now they could, they could see what it actually was and done well. Well, like know? we were saying before, you have to teach it because without the boundaries, the rules, the precepts, mm-hmm. you can't do it right. You're just doing something. You're not doing improv. Having said that, yes. I think the greatest improviser of all time is Jonathan Winters, who required no group. <laughs> Remember Jonathan Winters? Yes. They'd hand him a stick, and he'd, oh, I'm fishing now. Oh, right. I'm an alien. Oh, look, I'm a senator. I'm a small child. I'm an old lady. Like, he didn't, you know, we all work in groups, and he just did it on his own. But it's funny that in improv lore, he's... He's not. He's, he's no, not he's even a comedian. right. I mean, they don't even. They wouldn't even consider him. No, but he. I have interviewed him a couple of times. I've talked to him, and he improvised all those albums. 
How is he today? Well, he's old now. I don't know how he's doing. I haven't seen him in a couple of years, but uh, I mean, when I saw him, he was quick as a fucking wink. I mean, Robin too. You know, Robin's a, Robin Williams is a great improviser. Mm -hmm. um, what do you? Uh, but no one puts him in that category. Either. No. Because he is quite a good improviser. Because you think of him more as a stand-up. I've improvised with him, and he's hilarious. Is he generous on stage? Yeah, a mild As man. generous as, say, Ryan? Uh, well, he's a little more show-offy, but I mean, okay. he, he, also he's more manic. Okay. Ryan goes slow. Mm -hmm. Ryan is like Galileo. He changes the universe for his own purposes. Mm -hmm. And that's what I admire about his influence. We were, we were doing a bit once on TV, and he was a cop pulling a car over. And he got up, uh, he pulled the car over, right? He's the motorcycle cop. He got off the bike, and he walked around, sat, and came all the way up. This is on TV. <laughs> and then started the scene. He took that much time, and I thought, I'd have never done that. <laughs> I'd have pulled up and gone, hey! You know? Right. Boom. Let's go. Let's go. For me. And, and, and that's where I think Ryan is a great impressor. He makes the audience come to him. They have to go with his timing. And he, I'm not saying he's slow. I'm saying he takes the pace. He's more deliberate. The pace, yeah. The pace is his pace. So he can take forever. So you'll say, uh, um, I, th those brownies are stale. And he'll go, what the fuck do you mean by that? And <laughs> it's an atom bomb. You know, because he's taken the time to react. He knows that reacting is everything. It's all of them. I drive like a big dog. But, right? but I would say it, it's done. It's it's based on your two different approaches in terms of training. He came out of Second City. Yeah. You came out of more short form and more huh? more stand up. Huh? And they complement each other. I think so too. You know, because if you had four Ryan Styles in a cast, it wouldn't be as interesting. Do no. You think? I guess not. I mean, I, I think that's why he wants to work with me, is that we, we're not the same comedically. We, we come from a different place, so we, like you say, there's, you, you want a group to complement itself. You don't want four of the same person ever in a group, mm -hmm. in my opinion. I'm always getting asked by kids now what my advice on improv is. And what is say, your advice? Join a group where everyone's better than you. Don't be the funniest person in your group. You don't even learn anything. One last question. And you fail, fail. You have to fail. And how do you fail? When it goes poorly. Okay. And then you learn. How many bad shows do you think you've done? A million. Do you still, you think you got some left in you? Yeah, of course. You never know on any given night when you get a tank. Uh, Doug Stanhope is a very funny stand-up comedian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw him in um, Scotland about two weeks ago. And we were talking about this very thing. And how... When you're young and you're first starting in comedy, you think that you have to win every time. But it's the times you lose that you learn everything. He said, and he's a headliner. He's touring England and playing theaters. I don't change the material until it dies. Like, when it dies is the moment that I realize I've got to fix this. So there's no point when failure isn't a huge part of the game. And I think that's the hardest part of it, right? don't you? Yeah. It's the most vulnerable. Well, yeah. Because that's when they're not approving of you and when you're on your own and now you're not one of them and now you're not funny. And, but you have to fix that. But guys don't believe that. They think you have to be funny every time. Like, well, you're not funny. First of all, when you're starting, you're not funny at all. So who are you kidding? You're intermittently funny. How long do you think it takes to find your voice? As a stand-up, seven years, they say. As and it varies for different people. As an improviser. 
Oh, I don't think it takes that long at all as an improviser. Once you learn the rules and if you're motivated and you're in a good group, I think in the three or four years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I learn all the time. I learn all the time. And I watch the other guys in my group and see what they're doing. I watch them to see what they're doing and think, oh, I should do that instead of the shit I'm doing. I should slow it down here. I should, I should pick it up here. I should make more of a physical place here. You know, you teach it. Place is everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, status. Right. If you don't know what your status is in the scene, you're fucked. Oh, you know, we used to do bad improv as a joke and come in and go, hi, I'm a poorly developed character. I don't know how old I am or, <laughs> or what my economic strata is. Good evening. <laughs> I just want to thank you so much. Of course. I really appreciate it. My that. pleasure. One last question. I don't know if it's a fair question. Why does Wayne Brady have... have why do people give him such so much crap? I don't know. Uh, I always get along with Wayne. Wayne. I but I mean, in terms of him. people seem to give him in the media or the, the, the uh, like, he's a lightweight or something like that. Oh, I know. I don't know because if you have ever seen him improvise, he's dead clever uh-huh. and he's very funny, and he is. He's there's a lot of depth to him. Uh, he has a lot of anger and lots of other emotions that people don't perceive him as having. Um, I think it's because he was the only black guy on a show full of white people and that uh-huh. he pleased white people. <clears throat> For some reason, that rubs everyone the wrong way. It's uh-huh. an unfair thing. It's like being the only good-looking girl in the group. Mm-hmm. Everybody hates that girl. And it's like, well, she didn't do anything. She's just doing what she does. And I think that's... He's enormously talented. He is a, one of the funniest singing improvisers I've ever seen. Having said that, he's really funny and quick. Uh-huh. I used to do a talk show in LA and I'd have Wayne on as just a guest. And the whole audience would be predisposed, like, oh, Wayne Brady. See, that's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, Wayne. Yeah. He's going to be this, and he's going to be that. Then he'd get on, and he'd be cutting and satirical and from the heart. And then by the end, the whole room full of hipsters would be cheering. And then I'd make him improvise a song at the end. And then they'd be screaming for a song that they would have looked down their nose on. If I told them at the beginning he's going to improvise a song. When they see how clever and, and how with the, the thing that I love about him he makes it look easy. And people can't forget that either. People like it to look hard. There's whole people who spend their whole career making everything look hard. The people who talk about that acting's hard and a difficult craft, it's not. If you're any good at it, it's not hard at all. Uh, it's those people that drive me fucking crazy. Or they talk, oh, comedy's so hard. No, it's not. Practice it. Get good. Then, you, then it isn't that hard. Uh, Wayne can get up and knock a song off. People can't believe that he can do that, and there's a resistance to that. People said Louis Armstrong wasn't, you know, they give him the same kind of shit. Oh, he's for white people. Oh, he's too easy. Oh, it's this, it's too mainstream, it's too that. Um, in the end, he's still the most influential jazz musician this country's ever produced. And an innovator, too, that people didn't give him any credit for when he was doing it. He invented jazz with a bunch of other guys. You know? He started in a Dixie group with King Oliver. What he did was different than that. Right. With him, without him, there's no Miles. There's no Charlie Parker. There's no anybody. I'm not saying Wayne is Louis Armstrong. I'm just saying they, they take the same kind of shit. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody thought the same thing about. I mean, I made my wife watch uh, Hello Dolly the other day. With the, the scene where she walks in at the restaurant at the end, and Armstrong's there. It's his last time on film, and he sings Hello Dolly because it was a hit for him. Right. A, a, a complete fluke hit uh-huh. out of nowhere. He just happened to record the song, and it was a hit during when the Beatles were popular. And he goes, this is Lewis, Dolly. He, he sings his version. Even in the movie, my wife went, 
there he is saying his own name. Like, so self-referential. In the middle of a Hollywood film, she goes, look who's here. And he turns around and he goes, mm, right? And does it. He goes, right. And then just, ah, like all that. And then when he waved goodbye to her, he did this insane jazz black thing in mm-hmm. the 20s. He didn't go, like an actor. Right. He went, you know, Waving like this New Orleans thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like a real thing from 100 years ago that no one does anymore. This big physical stroke. Right. That you know, you, you, you're not taught that stroke. Right. He grew up in that. Mm-hmm. He was given a trumpet when he was eight years old, you know, like. <laughs> uh, and then we started talking about how people were always on Armstrong's ass. Oh, he's mm-hmm. an old time, he's this, he's that. It's like, no one knows what he had to fucking go through, one. And two, um, just because you're entertaining to a lot of people doesn't mean necessarily you're an asshole. Right. <laughs> In So we want to thank Greg Proops for being our guest. Uh, of course, I want to thank my producer, Ben Caprero, Rick Geiser of Zanies for setting this up. And if you want to catch Greg Friday or Saturday night, uh, you can go to zanies.com for tickets. If you want any more information about Improv Nerd, go please, please go to our Facebook page and like us. Or Classes, the artist low comedy taught by me, Jimmy Corain. You can go to jimmycorain.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, remember, walk, don't run. Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. That's the title. <laughs> One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. (laughs) 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm I'm a a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a (laughs) bat. I'm a bat bat that helps people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a bat that helps people. I don't know what you want from me. And my my girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My girlfriend's a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a bat. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my